of God's Word this morning, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 1. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm excited about it. We're going to go through this book. We're going to take as long as it takes to get through this gospel, they call it. And as Mark starts his book, there's anticipation hanging in the air. For those of you who like Christmas morning, that's kind of what they're feeling in the, in the first century Palestine, where the, it, the Jews are, where Israel is, where the Romans rule over them. There's anticipation. They've been waiting. And Mark now points in written form of a sermon directly to what fulfills that anticipation. The anticipation is deeper than what they realize. Every, every human soul, every human soul needs eternal forgiveness to enter God's heaven. That's why we need it. And God has a plan just to do that. He's executed that plan. But let me tell you a little bit about the book of Mark. Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning they're kind of at the t- synchronized at the same time, synchronized about the same events, although they're not actual duplicates of each other. And this book was written by a man named John Mark. And if you've read Acts and you've read any of your New Testaments, you know John Mark was a cousin to Barnabas and a close friend with Peter. John Mark went on a missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas and deserted them halfway through the trip. And uh, it kind of caused a little friction between Barnabas and Paul on their second missionary journey. So they parted ways. Barnabas took John Mark with him. But later, Paul and John Mark made up, and he became very useful to Paul. So this is the guy that is writing this go- has written this gospel. And he's written it as a testimony, his account of Jesus' ministry on, on planet Earth. And he's writing it, though, also from the eyes of Peter. Because of his close association with Peter, it is believed by scholars and by many of the early church fathers in the first and second century that Mark wrote this either after Peter had shared all this with him and passed on because he was martyred in Rome, or during the time he was passing it on to Mark, Mark was writing it down. We don't know exactly because we weren't there and we don't have any account of that. But Mark is a brief gospel. It's only 16 chapters, and it's non-chronological. So sometimes you're going to think, well, doesn't that story occur somewhere else? And in Matthew and Luke, it might. And we'll talk about those as we go through. But the point Mark wants to make is Jesus is human, but he's also God. And that's his point. So let me read this first 13 verses of chapter 1, and we'll kind of begin our journey through this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with leather, a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, proclaimed, quote, one is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee 
and was baptized in the Jordan River by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark. We thank you for the words it portrays, and we thank you for this starting passage that sets it all in its historical place in your full redemption story from Genesis to Revelation of how you plan to redeem humanity. May we see your truth in this this morning. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark begins his testimony of the gospel with a, a declaration of the prophecy that was going to be fulfilled and kind of how it was fulfilled already in the first 13 verses. He kind of explains that. The gospel is nothing more than good news. That's what the word literally means. In the Greek, it means good news. We like good news. But we've used this word to call the books of the, of the first four books of the New Testament the gospels. Well, all they are is a testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ. So we kind of have to keep that distinction as we walk through this. But Mark is beginning his testimony with that. And we see God's eternal plan for redeeming a sin-fallen world in, of humanity in his son, Jesus Christ. And we see it beginning right here. It's exciting. Like I said, anticipation hangs in the air in first century Palestine. So what is Mark asking his readers and those who may hear this read? What is he asking them to do? And what is he asking us to do? Well, I believe we have, he has given us three intellectual actions. That's a big word, intellectual actions, to take to heart. Okay? Three intellectual actions, and you see them on your outline there in your bulletin. First, he wants us to recall what God's Word says. See, when he writes this, there is no New Testament. There's only an Old Testament. There's only the Jewish Bible. They don't have Matthew to Revelation yet. So he's asking to remember God's word that was written before this time. Remember the prophecy. Verses 1 through 3. Let me read it again for you. In the beginning of the gospel of, Je the beginning of, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. So Mark kind of leads off in that first verse with exactly who this is about. He's not leaving anything to chance. He's not leaving any guesswork out there. He doesn't want you speculating. This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ. And it's in written form, but some people believe it was a sermon that he might have preached or recited to people, and someone wrote it down or he wrote it down himself. But Mark starts his testimonial with a trip back in time, 600 years. Verses, verses 2 and 3. That's what's the prophecy, and it was prophesied by Isaiah and Malachi, Isaiah at least 600 years earlier. And these prophecies give the details of what God's plans, how God's plan to send his son starts. He quotes from both Malachi, like I said, and Isaiah, even though he only gives credit to Isaiah, because the Jews at that time saw Isaiah as kind of the, uh, in a sense, the messianic Old Testament prophet. So the verses are actually in both kind of, but he, the, the, better, the first verse is better uh, found in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. 
And on a whole, just so you know, Mark really likes Isaiah. And as we move through the book of Mark, you're going to see him go back and tag Isaiah a lot because Isaiah spoke a lot about what Mark's going to tell us about. So that's kind of how his, uh, his theme is going to run through the book of Mark. So in this prophecy, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Who is you? Who is you in the prophecy? Well, he answers it in the later, later portion of the prophecy, the Lord. Now, this can be meant in, in the time of the, of the writing of the prophecy, could be meaning God, more likely. But now, it's interpreted as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. See, God planned to send a herald ahead of Jesus to tell and prepare and talk to the world about what was coming. So what kind of preparation needed to be made? Well, here's the preparation. There needed to be a message coming from the wilderness, and that's where John was doing his preaching from the wilderness about a new exodus coming, about a new opportunity to get free. See, he's reminding them of the old prophecy in the old times when the children of Israel left Egypt and went through the wilderness, spent 40 years in the wilderness to come to the promised land, which was a new hope, a new opportunity. But now this message is talking about the wilderness of sin, a chance for you to come from the wilderness of sin into the promised eternal salvation that God has always promised in his word. And he's going to make the path straight. Why does he need to make straight paths? Well, this is not literal necessarily, like a straight path up the center of the, the sanctuary this morning. This is more of like a direct focus on God's mission for Jesus. Jesus took a straight, obedient path to the cross. He was undistracted. He was unhindered. Even Peter tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. No, no, no. They're not going to do that to you, Jesus. And behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. So nothing's going to distract Jesus. And that's the path that, that John is setting up for Jesus by his message. The final path Jesus took, the, the Via Della Rosa, which is the way of suffering. That's what that word, those words mean in Latin. The way of suffering was a path through Jerusalem on the way from the from the courtyard of Pilate to the cross on Calvary. And Jesus took that. That was his final path. And that was the way of suffering that he was meant to take to fulfill God's purposes. So he took that path. And see, this prophecy, it was in print. See, this isn't something Mark just found, you know, in his head. It was in print. You know what? This is part of the prophecy that the Magi from the east who came to see Jesus at his birth knew about that there was going to be some great king born they didn't fully understand it but that's beside the point right now the the prophecy happened centuries before Jesus came and we need to remember that God's plan is right there in the Old Testament as much as it is in the New Testament and that's what Mark wants these readers to remember that you've read this a gazillion times probably you know there's, a, there's an adage that we say a lot of times, when all else fails, read the instructions. You know, most of the time my wife is saying it to me about something I'm putting together. But when all else fails, read the instructions. Or when you're lost, at least consult the map or go ask for directions. Man can't do that. But, but the same is with God. When you don't know something or you're curious about something or you're confused or stumped by something, go read his book. We have more today. We have 66 books. They only had the first 37, so or 39, whatever it is. <laughs> so read his book. 
That's what's important. I want you to hear the fuller prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah. We're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and then Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. I want you to listen to the whole prophecy that, that God made about Jesus. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for, before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3.1. Here's what Isaiah says. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain hill and hill will be made low. The uneven ground will become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, this message was about a prophecy of a man. This prophecy was about a man who would come with a message about the king of kings that we know as Jesus. See, God told them and God told us, if you read his book, about a messenger. So no one would dis disregard the message when it came. And that's kind of the question right now before us this morning is, is have we ignored the message? Mark's asking us that question. Here's the message. Here's the, here's the prophecy. It happened. Remember that. Have you ignored it? Or have you taken it for granted? You know how I can tell if someone's not taking it for granted? They're telling other people about it. That's all I'm, I'm just saying. In every human soul, there is a question longing to be answered. Is there more to life than this? Is this all there is? They're asking that question. They may not be asking it out loud, and you may not even get them to admit they're asking that question, but they are. Every human soul's got that emptiness that they feel. They don't know what to fill it with. That's why we tell people about Jesus. What's next? This prophecy will bring to all who listen the answer. Okay? There is more if one is willing to hear the truth, there is more to this life if you're willing to hear the truth. And today, I'm just merely a guy repeating this message, okay? Repeating this message. Will you hear it and be rescued today? That's the question that Mark once asked. And he's answering it. But in your own heart, you need to ask it. So remember the prophecy. And now that they've been told that there's a messenger coming, who is this guy? So recognize the messenger and the, mess and the message. Verses 4 through 8. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel-hell garment and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me i am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals i baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit well the messenger has arrived and he's got a message and mark's telling us straight who the messenger was john john the baptizer not John the Baptist. He's not the founding father of the Baptist denomination. Okay, so don't think that. He's the baptizer. John the baptizer. 
He is a relative of Jesus, believe it or not. I don't know what, whether he's cousin, second cousin, fifth cousin, fourth nephew once removed. I don't know exactly. But Elizabeth, his mama, and Mary, Jesus' mama, were related somehow. It never says how exactly. But he was born like Isaac to a woman of age that could not have children anymore, never had children. John was a miracle himself, and that's who he's talking about. He was the man preaching. He was the man preaching in the wild country that everyone should submit to a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And Mark, right now, he's kind of connecting the dots for some people. They're like, oh, that guy? They're like, oh, I didn't realize he was the messenger. So then Mark's connecting the dots for him. And, and yes, John the baptizer was the messenger. But the most important part is, listen to his message. What did he say? Well, this is what he said. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, that sounds familiar to me because in Acts 2.38, Peter repeated that very thing. To the Jews after, at Pentecost, after he explained to them what had happened to Jesus and who Jesus was, they're like, what should we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Mark, Mark is just pointing out, John's been claiming that message for years. His message was powerful. And it was new, very new to the ears of the people. Remember the good news of great joy that the shepherds went to Jesus to see? Well, this is good news of great joy. It's just they don't fully understand it and they haven't fully grasped it. But realize they have not heard a fresh message from God for over 400 years. That, that, that flyleaf between your Old Testament and your New Testament, that thing is 400 years long, just so you know. Okay? There's been 400 years since any prophet has spoken about God. And so all of a sudden, this guy's out in the desert preaching, wearing weird clothes, eating weird things, and telling people that you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Wait a minute, we've been going to the temple for centuries. Why do I need to come out here and be baptized? It's a new message. So everyone came out. It says there, everybody from the Judea countryside and Jerusalem, country folk, city folk, everybody went out. And they went out listening to John, and they did it in such a way that it was repeatedly. The verb there in the Greek is an imperfect verb, which means it's a continual process. They didn't just go one. John was not a one-hit wonder. He was there, he was preaching every day, and the people went over and over and over again to hear the same message. Y'all won't even come hear me preach the same message twice. But they came and heard the same message every time. Repent. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. I've lost my place. There we go. So, they came and the good news is they responded. They received a baptism of repentance. They confessed their sins. They admitted they were sinners and got baptized. Now, we need to understand this baptism you know, they were convicted to admit, but what is the baptism? Why baptism? Well, the baptism at the time, which is the word literally means to be immersed completely underwater and brought back up. That's what baptism is. It's not a sprinkling. It's not a dripping. It's not a pouring. It's a baptism, and the word literally means to immerse. And baptism was a symbol of cleansing. And if they did confess and they did repent, they would be willing to be washed in a tub of water, basically. But basically, it was a bathtub built into the ground like a pool probably six by three, most of the ones I saw when I was in Israel. 
So they would be willing, and it was part, mostly part of a ritual when a, a Gentile came and wanted to be a Jew, fo, Jewish follower of the follow, a Judea, enter Judaism. I'll get it out in a minute. Judaism, this is one of the rituals they would do. They would be baptized. It was a symbol that they were washed of their Gentile past, their pagan sins, and now in the religion of God Almighty, the Jewish religion. And it was part of that. And so by God's direction, John's asking all these Hebrews, remember he said the countryside of Judea, Hebrews, and the city of Jerusalem, Hebrews, he's telling them, you guys need to be treated like a Gentile. Whoa. That's big for a Jew. That's a big step. You've got to be washed in this baptistry again as if you were never saved, as if you were never forgiven. You've got to repent and enter the baptistry for that purposes. And it meant, when they did this, that they knew they were guilty of sins. They knew that they had to confess and admit. But the one thing we've got to notice about this baptism of repentance, that term, is that it's a baptism that's for sins that are past, not future sins. They're admitting they've sinned. They're not admitting and relying on God to forgive them for sins in the future. John can't do that. And he can't do it because... At this point, Jesus has not died. But John would never be able to do it. Because in verse 7, it's, it, John talks about the one is coming, and I'll explain that in a minute. But eternal life requires future forgiveness. It requires eternal forgiveness of our sins. And only Jesus can do that. And I'll talk on that in a minute. And then Mark gives this quick description of, of John. He wears a camel hair coat. And he wears a leather belt around his waist. And he eats locusts and wild honey. Now, wild honey I can live with, but... You know why he does that? Because it connects John to Elijah in the Old Testament. And, and, that, and later, Jesus says, Elijah has come again. And it was a John the Baptist. So Mark's giving a connection there to help them understand that just like Elijah, John is preaching the same message. Repent. Turn back to God. That's what Elijah was always trying to get the people to do. Confess your evil ways to God and be forgiven. Now, verse 7. This is an exciting verse because John preaches a greater message to them. He says, soon one will come who is more powerful, mightier, greater than he is. Than this prophet of God. See, that's the way they, they kind of elevated prophets of God, especially when they said something they wanted to hear. Well, how much greater is this guy that's going to be? Well, John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, understand, in the culture back then, the, the rabbis taught this to the Jews and the Hebrews. Your Hebrew slave or servant in your house should never untie your sandals. That should always be done by a non-Hebrew slave or servant. That's, that's why he's using this as a kind of an illustration of how worthless he is compared to Christ. He's saying, I'm lower than the lowest. And that's how much greater he is. And he's so great, he's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize true followers with the Holy Spirit. See, John's water baptism is a symbol. A symbol that you have confessed, admitted your sins, and you desire forgiveness. But the Messiah's baptism, the Messiah's baptism will change a person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Change their hearts. 
Make them pursue God in Christ. Now, John alludes to the fact that the Holy Spirit will baptize anybody that comes in contact with Jesus while he's on earth. That's one indication, kind of a, a, a metaphor of that. All of Christ's power to remove demons and to heal is the Holy Spirit being demonstrated to the people that are watching as he goes through his message and his ministry. It demonstrates the fact that Jesus is anointed by God as his son. The Messiah's baptism will change a person from the inside out. John's just merely is a symbol of what you're wanting. You're wanting forgiveness and you get forgiveness for the past, but... Jesus will help you be forgiven for the future. So do you see the messenger? That's Mark's question. Do you, do you hear the message of the messenger? Some of, I think some of Mark's readers are going, it's just plain as the nose on my face. I didn't realize John was the messenger. Now I need to think about his message. Or some of them are going, that guy, that weirdo in the desert that was eating weird bugs and stuff, he's the messenger? But those who recognize the messenger, those who confessed their sins and were baptized, they're, they're like the ones Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Blessed are they. Those are the ones that are accepting this message. They were hungry for truth and the revelation of God. Have you ever been surprised by a message or a truth that you didn't notice before, something... I know I read the Bible, I go, I didn't realize that was in there. I didn't realize that, that that phrase was written that way. We find those kind of things all the time as we're studying God's Word. But I also find it when I'm talking to people outside the church who don't really realize what we believe. They think we come here and we perform some ritual or some, some ceremony, and that's, that's Christianity. But when I tell them that all we're here to do is worship Jesus because he came and died to take a death penalty off of us so we would be right with God. They go, really? Is that what the Bible's about? Yeah, that's what the Bible's about. That's what Christianity is about, true Christianity. And I want everyone here to understand this message this morning, the message that John's been preaching. And he was sent for that one message, that Jesus, God's son, came to earth to take the penalty of death. We all were under he died, he was buried, he rose to grant eternal life to humanity for those who will believe. That's the message. That is the central point of Christianity. And if you've missed that message, you've missed the point of Christianity. If you think it's about organizational churches and those kind of things, it's, it's not. Those are periphery things to the central message, the purpose of Jesus Christ and his coming. Nothing else matters except Trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing else matters. It starts with that. It can grow to living a different life and living differently, but it starts with believing that. And then the message and messenger and the message have been heard, and then all of a sudden one day John's message walks up to him. Realize the Messiah came, verses 9 through 13. As John is baptizing in the Jordan River, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. 
One day, Jesus just walks up to John and says, I need to be baptized. And he comes from the town of Nazareth, not a big town, not a famous town. Matter of fact, its, it's uh, reputation back then was, it was a no good town. But that's where Jesus came from. And Jesus came to John and he asked to be baptized. And we have debated this for centuries. Why in the world did Jesus need to be baptized? The bottom line, God told him to. That's really the bottom line. He was to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew records that for us in Matthew 3.14. To fulfill all righteousness. God commanded Jesus to submit to this rite, this ritual that he's doing, to show his humanity to the world and to show his obedience to God. Jesus set the example of obedience because God told him to. And this act kind of established the humanity of Jesus as well as his obedience to God. And it also created a, a scene where God affirms Jesus. God's affirming you. The, the spirit came down on him, like a, looked like a bird. The heavens tore open. I don't know if it was all the way to outer space or not. It, it was obvious enough that it was torn. It was, it was not normal sky. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a cloud that looked like a tear. It was the sky was open in some form or fashion. And the Holy Spirit comes down looking like a bird. Mark picks a dove. Several others pick a dove. So it must have fluttered like a dove. It wasn't a dove. It was like a dove. And God shows Jesus that God, his father, is with him. And that's the whole point of this, this demonstration here. God spoke to Jesus there, and he quoted about three verses from his Old Testament. He, he, he didn't use new words. He just said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And uh, he's quoting these verses from different places, but... It, God's the original author, so he's really not quoting somebody. They quoted him. But. So Jesus is God, and the Spirit comes down to assist Jesus in his ministry and his work. And Jesus got baptized, like I said, because God told him to. Which is the same reason he goes out into the desert, out into the wilderness of wilderness, and is tempted by no other than Satan himself. Now, who volunteers for that? I'm not volunteering for that. I'd be back real quick because... 40 days without food would be a long time. But the Spirit deliberately led Christ out there. Now, Christ didn't go unwillingly. That was part of the obedience, too. But the Spirit was like, you know, encouraging him and, and, and urging him to go and stay out there to be tempted like we are for 40 days by the great tempter himself. No food, no family, no help at all. And Jesus the Messiah did this to provide humanity with a Savior that can resist evil. And that's the hope we have, is we have a Savior who resisted all the temptations that you and I will ever face, and yet was sinless. I mean, Satan attacked him with everything. There, we, we have descriptions in Matthew and Luke of, of three temptations, but he was there 40 days. Satan didn't just launch three attacks. He faced everything he could potentially face that covers every sin that we could potentially be tempted in. And yet he resisted them all, praise God. That ought to make us happy. And then Mark mentions that the wild beasts are there. I think Mark's just trying to paint a picture, a good vivid picture of how wild and crazy the wilderness was. It wasn't, it wasn't like out here in the woods in civilization where you can hear the interstate and you can hear cars and, you know, it was way out. A place where you can get lost in perish and then after the 40 days these angels came and ministered to him 
See, from these bits of history and evidence, one can clearly see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior, has come. And that's what Mark's wanting us to get out of this. You can see it clearly from this. I mean, shepherds came to his birth. Wise men came to his birth. And even they could not fully realize who baby Jesus was. They knew maybe a great king or something. They were told by angels, but they didn't fully understand that this guy was going to take all of our sins to the cross for us. See, Jesus Christ, a historical figure, there is no debate anymore about whether Jesus lived or died or was real. He is real. But Jesus Christ, a historical figure, is actually the Son of God. He's not just a man, and he's our Savior. You know why I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. Go back to Sunday school. The Bible tells me so. And here's what Mark is kind of hoping you grasp in the end, okay? And in, the last, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, here, he wants to drive home the point, sort of just one more time, make sure you understand this, and show you someone who finally got it, or did get it, with, with his exposure to Jesus. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this is this man was the son of God. He had no seminary training. He didn't go to Sunday school. He'd never been to VBS. But he recognized the way Jesus died on the cross, that he was the son of God. Only the Son of God could come and fulfill all these prophecies, survive 40 days in the desert with Satan, and still remain sinless. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews points that out in Hebrews 4.15. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is perfect. So the question for us today, who are you trusting? Who are you trusting to cover your sins? We all know we have them. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. We all have sins. Who are you trusting to provide the redemption of your soul to reconcile you with a holy God? Who are you trusting? See, Jesus, the name you hear misused a lot, even sometimes by churchgoers, came to serve you by paying your death penalty for God. You realize that? He came to die for you. He suffered, bled, and died on a cross so that you could be forgiven completely, forever. We're talking about that future forgiveness I mentioned earlier. That's what Jesus died for. See, God's Word, the Bible, has told us that life everlasting hangs in the balance for every human being. And Jesus is the only solution to that dilemma. You realize that? Jesus is the only solution to that dilemma. Jesus lives and wants to live in your heart to save you from eternal death. Believe and repent today. That's Mark's command. That's Peter's command. That's John's message. That's my message this morning. Believe and repent today in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Please, if you don't know him, you can start today as your Savior you can turn your eyes to Jesus and see a Savior, a Savior who relieves you from all your sin. See, God knew we needed saving. He knew that from eternity past. He knew we were going to blow it. He knew Adam and Eve were going to mess up in the garden. And he planned before he ever created anything to save us. He made the plan. Mark tells us the beginning of it. He tells us the beginning of it right here.
I hope you grasp it. I really hope you have grasped that this plan has been executed and is available to anyone who will believe. If you see the truth of God's word and you hear the messenger's voice, the messenger's message, then you realize that Jesus can save. But do you believe that he can save? Now, as believers, I, I ask you, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, I ask you to rejoice that you've been redeemed. God has saved your heart, saved your soul. And now I ask you to tell the world about it. That's one way we can make sure we don't ever take it for granted, is that we're telling everybody. We live like we believe that the most important message is the gospel. Now, if you're here, friend, without Jesus, your heart is lost. It's lost in the turmoil of sin and eternal damnation. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news if you've never heard that. But if you believe in him, your soul will be free. And what, do you, what does it take to believe? Well, it's an it's act of faith. And faith says and acts on this with conviction. I believe in you, Jesus Christ. I trust you, your death, burial, and resurrection to pay for my sins, to cover my sins before God. You say it without reservation. You believe I can be forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you trust him without reservation. And then you repent. And all that means is to turn away from the things you're trusting in, the other things that have been your go-to for following Christ or for, for making yourself right with God. You get rid of them, put it behind you. I mean, that's what Elijah was asking them in the Old Testament. That's what John the Baptist is telling them, repent. And if you want help understanding this more, come see me afterwards. Come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about this. It is the most important message I can ever tell you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that out of your grace, because you did not have to do this, you saved us. You provided a way for humanity to be right with you again. You provided a, a path to be reconciled to you, a holy God, because we are unholy. We are unclean. And the most amazing part of this grace is that you sent your only son to do it. You sent Jesus to take our death penalty. Help us to have faith in that and to rejoice in that and to tell others about that. May our lives and our words speak often about this message that you sent your son to die for us so that we could be forgiven by you. Thank you. In your son's name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing about turning our eyes toward Jesus.